Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, February 21st. In today's news, Trump confidant Roger Stone is sentenced to 40 months in prison. Americans infected with the coronavirus were flown home against the CDC's advice. And the odds of a contested Democratic convention grow as the anti-Sanders vote stays fragmented. But first, the big idea. A senior U.S. intelligence official told lawmakers last week that Russia wants to see President Trump reelected, viewing his administration as more favorable to the Kremlin's interests. After learning of that analysis, which was provided to House lawmakers in a classified hearing, Trump grew angry at his acting director of national intelligence, Joe McGuire, during a meeting in the Oval Office. He saw McGuire and his staff as disloyal for speaking to Congress about Russia's perceived preference. The intelligence official's analysis and Trump's furious response is what ruined McGuire's chances of becoming the permanent intelligence chief. It's not clear what specific steps, if any, U.S. intelligence officials think Russia may have taken to help Trump for 2020. Trump now, though, is replacing McGuire with a vocal loyalist, Rick Grinnell. White House officials had said that McGuire, a career official who's respected by the intelligence rank and file, was considered the leading candidate to be nominated to the post. The official who gave the House briefing, Shelby Pearson, said several times that Russia has, quote, developed a preference for Trump. According to reporting from my colleagues Ellen Nakashima, Shane Harris, Josh Dossian, and Guerin. That conclusion was part of a broader discussion of election security that also touched on when the U.S. government should warn Democratic candidates if they're being targeted by foreign governments. Trump erroneously believed that Pearson had given the assessment exclusively to lead House impeachment manager Adam Schiff, the chairman of the Intelligence Committee. Trump also believed that the information would be helpful to Democrats if it were released publicly. Trump learned about Pearson's remarks from Congressman Devin Nunes, the California Republican who's the ranking member of the Intel panel. Nunes got Trump worked up about McGuire. The president then ripped into him for Pearson's remarks when the two met the next day during a special briefing for Trump on election security that was attended by officials from several intelligence agencies. Pearson, who gave the House briefing, wasn't at that meeting. Trump said McGuire should never have briefed Capitol Hill. Trump then told McGuire and other aides during the Oval Office meeting that he doesn't believe Russia's interfering to help him or planning to do so. And he said the intelligence community is getting played. Trump said the information would be used against him unfairly by Democrats and that he can't believe that people were believing such a story again, repeating his opinion that Russian interference in 2016 was a, quote, hoax made up by U.S. officials with a political agenda. It was not a hoax. McGuire, during that briefing with the president, struck an apologetic tone in a bid to salvage his nomination and keep his job. White House officials say that Trump's decision to make Grinnell the acting director rather than to nominate him for the position permanently reflected concerns that he couldn't get confirmed by the Senate, given his very polarizing reputation. The president told reporters aboard Air Force One last night that Congressman Doug Collins, the Republican from Georgia, a staunch Trump supporter during the impeachment proceedings, who's also running for U.S. Senate, is now under consideration for the permanent post. Now, Collins lacks any intelligence experience, but this would get him out of a competitive Senate primary, 
in Georgia against Kelly Loeffler, who was appointed to the seat. That's something Mitch McConnell desperately wants and could help grease the wheels for Collins to be confirmed. The shakeup at the top of the intelligence community is just the latest move in Trump's post-impeachment purge. The deputy national security advisor, Victoria Coates, has also been removed from her post after some colleagues, including trade advisor Peter Navarro, led a whisper campaign to accuse her of being the author of Anonymous, that negative book about Trump. Coates strenuously denies this accusation, but Trump still forced her out of the White House. She's been moved to an advisory position at the Energy Department. Meanwhile, a former NSC aide who tried to discredit the Russia probe has been promoted. Kash Patel is now a senior advisor for Grinnell at ONI. It's not clear what exact role Patel will play, but he used to be a top aide to Devin Nunes, the congressman who turned Trump against McGuire. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this week comes to an end. Number one, Roger Stone was sentenced to 40 months in prison yesterday. The penalty from U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson comes after weeks of infighting over the politically charged case that threw the Justice Department into crisis, but it's likely not to be the final word. Even before the sentencing hearing began, Trump seemed to suggest on Twitter that he will pardon Stone. With the proceedings ongoing, Trump questioned whether his ally was being treated unfairly. Afterward, he attacked the jury in the case and said he would, quote, love to see Roger exonerated. In a lengthy speech before she imposed the penalty, Judge Jackson took aim at Trump, saying Stone was not prosecuted for standing up for the president. He was prosecuted for covering up for the president. She also appeared to call out Attorney General Bill Barr, saying that his intervention to reduce the sentencing recommendation by career prosecutors was, quote, unprecedented. But she emphasized that the politics surrounding this case did not influence her sentencing decision. Stone chose not to speak in court and showed no visible emotion as the sentence was read. Emerging from the courtroom in a wide-striped suit and a polka dot tie, he appeared calm and said he had nothing to add. The 67-year-old was convicted by a federal jury on seven counts of lying to Congress and tampering with a witness about his efforts to learn about hacked Democratic emails related to Hillary Clinton. Stone, his wife, and a large entourage exited the courthouse to a large group of photographers, supporters, and antagonists. As he climbed into an SUV to go get lunch at the Palm, protesters shouted, lock him up, while supporters yelled, pardon Roger Stone. Stone requested a new trial last week. The judge previously said she'll delay implementing his sentence until she resolves that request. A filing is due from Stone's defense team this coming Monday. So for now, he remains out on bond. And even if he loses his motion for a new trial, he will have at least two weeks to turn himself in unless an appeal further delays things. Number two, infected Americans were flown home from Japan with the coronavirus against the CDC's advice. In the wee hours of a rainy Monday, more than a dozen buses sat on the tarmac of the Tokyo airport. Inside, 328 weary Americans wearing surgical masks and gloves waited anxiously to come back to the States after weeks in quarantine above aboard the Diamond Princess, that luxury cruise liner where the coronavirus had exploded into a shipwide epidemic. But as those buses idled, U.S. officials wrestled with troubling news. 
New tests showed 14 passengers infected with the virus. The U.S. State Department had promised no one with the infection would be allowed to board the planes. In Washington, where it was still Sunday afternoon, a fierce debate broke out. The State Department and a top Trump administration health official wanted to forge ahead. The infected passengers had no symptoms and could be segregated on the plane in a plastic-lined enclosure. But officials at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention strongly disagreed, contending vigorously that these people could spread the virus to everyone else aboard the plane. The CDC believed the 14 should not be flown back with the uninfected passengers. The State Department won the argument. But unhappy CDC officials demanded to be left off the news release that explained why infected people were being flown to the United States. Meanwhile, Chinese authorities today have reported hundreds of new coronavirus infections at prisons around mainland China. A handful of prisons reported 500 new cases, a significant portion of the 1,100 new cases reported today, and a market increase after several days of declines. And in South Korea, new cases skyrocketed, bringing their national total to 204, as worries mount that that country is becoming the new hotspot. Many of those cases have been traced to a regional branch of a fringe religious sect. Chinese researchers say they're on track to submit a vaccine for clinical trials in late April to combat the coronavirus. Animal models of mice and monkeys infected with the virus have been constructed, which will provide support for drug screening, vaccine development, and research on viral transmission mechanisms. China set up a scientific research group about a month ago now with 14 experts to come up with a vaccine. But confusion continues to grow over China's methods. One city reported today more cases of the coronavirus than the province it is in reported, which shows that they're using different criteria to count. The province deducted cases that have not been confirmed through the genetic testing, but the city counted all the diagnoses that have been made by physicians. At best, this has frustrated people who are trying to understand what's going on. At worst, it's raising suspicions that this is part of a cover-up by the communist regime in Beijing. Number three, the final question at Wednesday night's Democratic debate in Nevada provided a telling summary of the state of the nomination contest. It's now Bernie Sanders against the field. The question for the six candidates was straightforward. Should the person who wins the most pledged delegates during the primaries, even if he or she does not have a majority, be nominated at the national convention in Milwaukee in July to become the party's challenger to Trump? Sanders alone said yes. The five others said in the, that scenario, the decision of who becomes the nominee should be left to all the delegates of the convention, including the roughly 770 superdelegates, the party committee members, lawmakers, and other high-ranking Democrats who can vote if the contest goes to a second ballot. But if there's agreement that Sanders will lead the Democratic race going into July, there's similar agreement among insiders that he's not likely to be able to win a majority. If that turns out to be the case, Democrats could be headed for a chaotic convention that splits the party and weakens Democrats in the general election, regardless of who emerges as the eventual nominee. If anything, Wednesday's debate provided incentive for all the candidates trying to become the alternative to Sanders to stay in the race as long as possible. Pretty much everyone agrees that the poor performance by former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg eliminates any hopes that he could easily consolidate the moderate to center left wing of the party in opposition to Sanders. Robbie Mook, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager in 2016, said yesterday that it's hard to see what forces will stop Bernie from becoming the frontrunner and just as hard to see how there will be any consolidation into any single candidate to oppose him. So for now, top candidates have not only staffed up with delegate experts to guide them through the intricacies of the primaries, 
but they're also building legal teams preparing to challenge any results that don't go their way. And in preparation for a contested convention, some campaigns have started to reach out to superdelegates in an attempt to secure support from them for a second ballot when they could come into play. First, though, Nevada votes. The caucuses are tomorrow, and then South Carolina's primary is a week from Saturday. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, February 21st. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Have a good weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday.